The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Welcome to the new people. It looks like there are a few new people. So, in case you don't know, we've been, uh, as a group, as a community, looking at the ten paramis, a list in Buddhist practice where um, the ten wholesome qualities of heart that support an awakened life or a life of freedom, a life of real love, real wisdom, are kind of outlined. And any of these ten qualities, when we begin to develop it, of course, leads to all the other ones. And you could probably organize it in different ways. And the different Buddhist traditions, you know, like Theravada Buddhism, there are ten paramis. And Mahayana Buddhism, there are seven. So the important thing is to remember all ten qualities. The important thing is to get interested in what we discover through our own you know, process of paying attention is a wholesome quality. And to begin to unpack it and recognize not only is it wholesome, but it's inherent. It's not like I'm being kind. I cultivated kindness in my life, and now I can be really kind. It's more like as we look at, notice the capacity to be kind, which is the particular parami that we've begun to work with this month. As we begin to see kindness in different moments of our life, even something as simple as in our meditation practice relating to the next in-breath, you know, instead of being judging or irritable or indifferent, maybe in one moment with one in-breath, there's a real kindness, a real um, willingness to be close, a willingness to allow it to be the way that it is, just like we'd want to treat our lover or our child. You know, we wouldn't want to impose our will on our lover or our child. Well, we don't want to impose our will on our breath either. Don't want to dismiss it. Don't want to be indifferent to it. So it's really the same attitude. And when we see it and we bring a real interest to it, we begin to see that this wholesome quality of kindness, or metta is the Pali word, isn't something that I did or I created. It's something that naturally expresses itself when I'm not afraid, when I'm not feeling needy, when I'm not uh, feeling bored or indifferent to my life. Then I just start to recognize this, you know, universal quality, you could say. There's a wonderful poem by Rumi, this, I think, 13th century. Sufi poet, Persian poet, it goes like this. Lord, the air smells good today. Straight from the mysteries within the inner courts of God, a grace like new clothes thrown across the gardens, free medicine for everybody. Face to face with the lion, I grow leonine. Walking out of the treasury building, I feel generous. Anyone still sober in this weather must be really afraid. And this is a, you know, this edge, this, you know, sitting on this fence between feeling justified and being tight and fearful and needy and greedy and competitive, manipulating, 
manipulative. And, you know, the other, the other side, where our, the way we lead, the way we relate, our attitude, our basic attitude, is one of faith or trust or love or kindness. It doesn't mean we're stupid, you know, like thinking everyone's going to treat me well. It just means that the heart is relating with kindness. And it's sort of, you know, we don't really understand that because we haven't completely unpacked kindness. For us, kindness gets associated with very various ego-bound states, like, I love you because you love me. I love you because you put up with me. You know, so I'll put up with you. There's sort of these business relationships, and then we call it love. But it's not really love. Love is, you know, this metta is really meant to be this immeasurable, universal quality that isn't about the particular person. You know, we love our pet because our pet needs us and looks up at us, you know, with those amazing eyes and uh, sits with us and, you know, licks our hand or whatever. But, you know, what's actually in the way of relating to a mosquito that way? Mark was just telling me about Jan dealing with a lot of mosquitoes at the last nine-day retreat that just ended on Sunday. A number of people here and many people in our community did the nine-day retreat with Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters, two of our visiting teachers, senior teachers who come once a year usually. And, uh, you know, when we're in that situation where we're face-to-face with mosquitoes or something that's irritable, doesn't mean we don't try to negotiate, you know, and find a way to happily coexist. But whether we're successful at that or not, what's actually in the way of being moved by the fact that the mosquito is just trying to be happy, just trying to survive, just trying to live its life? Why can't we be moved? Why can't we bring to mind right now the politician that most pushes our buttons, that we most disrespect or feel, you know, don't have the interests, the best interests of the country or people in mind. Why can't we bring them to mind and actually see that this person deals with a lot of fear and a lot of confusion, a lot like us, has a lot of sense that what will make them happy is controlling or making something very specific happen, just like we try to control things and make specific things happen for us. And it, in that, you know, falling on this side, going to this side of the fence as opposed to the needy, fearful side of the fence, it's really about right attitude. And that's why I spoke two weeks ago when I introduced this next parami on kindness or metta, loving kindness. I mentioned how, you know, a good way to work with it is in terms of right view, to see that loving kindness in a way is an easy way to connect with right view, to go beyond our bound, ego-bound way of relating, being in the world, which, you know, it sets in motion this inward, self-centered gravitational pull, as I often talk about. And we lose that abundance that 
Rumi was pointing to, you know, where we feel free. We feel like everything is medicine. Every moment is an opportunity to realize this abundance, this capacity to care, this capacity to be happy, to be joyful, this capacity to be moved, this capacity to let go, capacity to be grateful, to start over, to forgive. What actually, with, with those attitudes or with that way of being, what actually could be a problem? It's like the Buddha teaches about the eight winds that human beings get blown toward. You know, the wind, the direction of pain, and then we get blown towards pleasantness. Then we get blown towards fame, and then disrepute, and praise, and blame, and whatever else I'm forgetting. <laughs> Gain and loss, I think it is. So, you know, it's just a way of, of teaching that we are not in control, and pretty much anything can happen. And over a long enough period of time, everything will happen. We will be praised. We will be blamed. Some of that praise isn't maybe deserved in some sense of the word. And some of the blame probably isn't deserved. Some of it is deserved, in a sense, from a certain perspective. But the real point is, are we actually using our life to cultivate attitudes or understandings that allows our life to be blown about in this way? And so much so that it's not actually that important what direction the wind is blowing in any given moment, if we're going towards blame or fame, or praise rather. So we're really, um, you know, as practitioners, as people on this path of awakening, we're not so interested, we're not so concerned rather, about how the wind is blowing right now for us, towards pain, towards pleasantness, towards gain, towards loss. But we're really directing our mind, our heart, to learning, to discovering, to uncovering wisdom, or you could say love, you know, right attitude, right view, that will take care of us no matter where we're getting blown. There's a great story in Buddhist practice about how um, more important than, you know, trying to take care of the world. The, the, the image the Buddha used is like covering the world with leather so that we don't stub our toe or don't step on something sharp. Easier than covering the whole world in leather is to build a pair of shoes. And then wherever you step, you're going to be fine. And it's the same thing. He's really pointing to insight or wisdom or love. Like if we really want to be able to handle life, instead of using our, our will and our competence, our intelligence, and that sort of willful intelligence, like figuring out life to get rid of all the bumps, to avoid anything bad that could happen to us, and to secure all the good, which is like covering the world in leather, completely impossible, we can develop wisdom. And so for these weeks, you know, into July probably, as we work with loving-kindness, and then after that, the last of the ten paramis, equanimity, you know, we can 
both. They're sort of different angles on the same thing, right view or right attitude. And we can really be working on that, not, not on the next temporary fix. You know, I'll go home and I'll make a nice dinner. I'll go home. I'll make this phone call and I'll fix this relationship. It's not that we're not we're going to be able to avoid those things. We're still going to have to take care of the bumps in life. But we want to do it with an attitude that teases out all of the clinging, all of the grasping, all of the suffering involved in taking care of ourselves, involved in removing the bumps and smoothing the way for ourselves, and for all those other beings that we care about, like all of them. So it doesn't mean we get away from our responsibility of caring for our body and caring for our mind and caring for our community, caring for the earth. It just means it's not a heavy trip because we have an attitude that's teased out the heaviness. So now it's this abundance, like the poem sort of points to our participation with our kids, if you have kids, or our jobs, our partners, our friends, our community, the earth, the way we relate, the way we participate, the way we engage our lives is now an expression of love or generosity, abundance of happiness, of joy, and the heart being moved by suffering. Compassion is not a heavy state of mind. Compassion is a beautiful state of mind. And to just open our mind that it actually might be possible, even to be a little pr provocative that this happiness, this joy, this abundance could even be possible if our earth is sliding into hell. Our civilization is sliding into hell. I don't know why, but a while back, my wife uh, rented, is it 2012, that um, kind of blockbuster film that came out a while back? <laughs> I was amazed at how fun it was <laughs> to watch California. They, uh, somehow, you know, with these graphics, they were able to show California sort of, and then sliding. Into, I didn't realize it was so deep right there where the whole state could just like fall into the ocean. <laughs> so, you know, we, some of us in particular, you know, have this uh, sensitivity to catastrophe, both because the maybe the actual proximity of catastrophe, you know, whether it's small or big, you know, the whole earth or just in our own particular life. And so we want we want to open our mind that we could be we could be cultivating, directly cultivating an attitude that would really take care of us even in the most difficult, the most challenging situation that might arise for a human being. Whatever that might be, whether it's our own personal death or the loss of our child, or our pet, or our partner, or the whole world falling apart, you know, mass destruction. And just to, you know, right now to see, like, what if we're challenged by that possibility, you know, why not open our minds to that being possible? And it really goes to the the question, you know, does hatred, does fear, does um, disconnection, you know, 
some form of denial or distraction, some form of ill will, does it ever make sense? Does it ever help? Is it ever a useful state of mind to close our hearts, to throw something, somebody out of our hearts? Does that ever work in the long run or help in the long run? One way to begin to uncover this basic goodness and to cultivate, to uncover these, this wholesome way of relating or this wholesome attitude is just to, at first it might feel like you have to jumpstart this capacity or it might feel a little awkward or even, I don't know, um, inappropriate. But to just begin to feel empowered to bless things. You know, to feel good about, to wish well for, just in the small ways, to care about, like I mentioned, the mosquitoes around you or the, the little things, the trees you see, the people you interact with. Because it's so easy to feel like, well, who am I? You know, who am I to wish well? Who am I to care about this? How could that be helpful? But the thing is, it's not about fixing something. It's not, I'm like, I'm not going to care about you guys because somehow I feel I have to care about you or you're going to, you know, have a miserable life. The caring is for its own sake. Now, maybe it will be beneficial for you. Hopefully, you know, whenever my heart is capable of caring, is able to manifest caring or love or kindness or gratitude. Hopefully, it actually benefits other people. But first and foremost, it's a really beautiful way of being in that moment. And if nothing else, in that moment, this heart is modeling a really beautiful, skillful way of being in the moment. So in and of itself, it's already healing. It's already a release, a relief from the contracted states that we generally fall into. So, you know, as you go about your day uh, over the next several weeks as we're working on this thing, really experiment. And it, each of us have to find our own way. But instead of, like, uh, apportioning out our goodwill, just uh, have a sense that there's an abundance, like an immeasurable well there. And you're really, you don't need to worry about, like, you're, you're sending out too much love or having too forgiving or... But just a, a sense like happily giving it away. And you see, you can really get a sense like how that threatens the ego, which it has this, self, this inner gravitational pull, like to be generous. Now, I'm not even talking about giving away all of our money and all our clothes. I mean, just with our good wishes to practice being generous. Like just to look out at the room now and the different people in the room now. And just to have a sense that you know, I actually have the capacity right now, maybe feeble, but I have the capacity right now to really wish that all of you have wonderful lives, you know, deep inside and really beautiful connections with other human beings and 
beautiful connection with moments of your own life. And, and it's just to recognize why would that be endangering us to have that kind of generosity of good wishes. So to really explore that. And then when you bump up against places in your life where that good wishing, wishing well, seems blocked or doesn't feel appropriate, you know, it's like those difficult places, difficult stories, you know, those places of unfinished business. Then we want to bring to mind something Sylvia Borstein talks about on her chat in her chapter. It's one of the books we've been using over the last year and a half that we've been working with the Paramis. It's a book actually on the Paramis called Pay Attention for Goodness Sake, Practicing the Perfections of the Heart, the Buddhist Path of Kindness. And it's by Sylvia Burstein, one of the senior teachers at Spirit Rock, one of the founding teachers of Spirit Rock Meditation Center and just outside of San Francisco in Marin County. And I, I, she's probably not the first person who said it in this way, but it's it's really a nice way to talk about this. So another practice we can work with, especially when we bump up in those places in life where it doesn't feel possible to wish well, to have that sense of abundance, where goodness is arising in our minds and our hearts in that moment of experience, that we can practice rewriting the story. So no matter how entangled, no matter how much resentment there might be in a particular place in our life, how much fear, how much sense of neediness, we can practice rewriting that story, that particular situation in our life. So even if it has, you know, if it, even if it's been a horror story up until now, or you know, a great tragic epic, you know, like I remember when I was young in the '60s, my parents took me to see uh, how the West was won. And and another film. I mean, it was sort of strange that my parents took me to these films. It took a couple of the kids in our family. I grew up in a big family. We never went to see movies. I don't remember any other movies really seen when I was young because we'd go to drive-ins every once in a while. And uh, but inside, I saw How the West was one, and then there was another one, and both were so tragic. Some of you might remember How the West was one. It was kind of a big film back in the '60s. The other one was They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Anybody see that film? I mean, it's one of the most depressing films of all times in the Depression, where people who were desperate for money would do these like uh, four-day dances, you know, dance marathons, like who stay, can stay on their feet longest, and then they'd win some money. And uh, people would be desperately, you know, trying to stay awake so they'd get whatever the, the prize money was for these dance marathons. And it's just... I don't remember the story. I just remember it being really tragic. And uh, so to kind of open our mind that when, when we bump up against these, these, you know, just the inevitable difficulty in life, the loss that it's inevitable, the ill health that's inevitable, the, you know, one of the real tragedies I've realized in my life is how really good people can get confused and have problems uh, really here in each other. And, you know, a lot of pain and resentment and mistrust can arise, even though, generally speaking, both people involved or all the people involved are good people and well-meaning. But just because people are generally well-meaning 
doesn't mean there's not going to be conflict. And that, that was kind of shocking to me as, I, as I've discovered this in my life. I mean, I see it in my, you know, my relationship with my wife, who I love and deeply respect as a wise, loving person. And yet, I notice all the time, ill will coming up in me and sometimes in her. And uh, it's just, it's kind of shocking. So in those cases, instead of being paralyzed by the conflict or by the ill will we see in ourselves or around us and other people, we can go to work to rewrite it. It's not over. The story isn't over yet. You know, and that's something I see a lot in my relationship with my wife and, and also in other relationships. And it, it, it always surprises me how easy it is because in the midst of feeling the negativity, you know, my own heart, you know, as I imagine is in somebody else's heart, you know, it just seems uh, so entrenched and like, it, this is unworkable, no way to fix it, or something like that. But, you know, what experience actually tells me is it's relatively easy to continue the story. And once the story is still moving, you know, it's not frozen, then it's actually easy to move it in a direction that's healing, that's less entrenched, less heavy, and maybe even toward you know, complete healing eventually. It, it's only unworkable when the mind-heart is frozen. Frozen meaning it's really attached to the belief that it's unworkable. Like this person's unworkable, or I'm unworkable, or my pain can't be dealt with, it's too much. Then we stop writing the story, and then it's, in a sense, temporarily at least, over. So as a story, it is a tragedy, because we it sort of ended on a bad note, and nothing's happening. So in those places where nothing's happening and it ended on a bad note, it's like instead of trying to convince yourself that this is well, how it is, or we both deserve it to be this bad, we can just like explore, well, how can we add a little bit more? What could we add? Maybe even not even communicating with the person, but just changing, beginning to change our own understanding, like bringing in a little bit more information. Like not just thinking about this person in one light, but thinking about them in another light. Or not just thinking about ourselves in one light, but thinking about ourselves in another light. So we're kind of bringing in some space, bringing in some new information. And all of a sudden, the story starts to come alive. It's not over. It's still, healing is still possible. And then, in a way, we're looking for, you know, how to do the next sentence or the next chapter. And uh, yeah, just keeping our mind open. Because the ego, you know, the, the more contracted conditioning in the mind, it prefers things to be defined, it will choose something that's really defined, finished, then open, ended. Right? Even if it's a painful ending, there's something about our ego-centric mind that just wants ground, even if it's painful ground. And the practice is really about uh, uh, kind of acquiring a taste for things being fluid and open and undefined. Stories, we keep adding to the story, allowing it to unfold. 
at first, you know, it's sort of a willful act. It takes a little sort of fearlessness and kind of willful effort to sort of open some doors, bring in some new information. But we learn, we discover in moments at least that the best stories, you know, the best endings or the best sort of next chapters happen naturally and spontaneously the more we get out of the way. It's really a deep lesson about love, you know, that about real love is spontaneous and effortless. But that doesn't mean we can fake it or just go there. We kind of go there by these two trainings, you know, where we consciously, intentionally experiment with blessing and sending out our good wishes, sending out forgiveness and gratitude, sharing joy, even if it feels a little awkward, even if it feels at first inappropriate or, you know, don't really have it down. But we just, we have to kind of open that door and we have to practice at it. And then the other, as I just finished talking about, is opening the door to, to rewriting or continuing adding more to the difficult stories in our life, the difficult um, you know, patterns or difficult things that have been set in motion, those you know, interpersonal relationships mostly. But a lot of it is just you know, within our own mind. It's not just, you know, our relationship with our brother or a former colleague or a boss or somebody who we were the boss of. A lot of it is our own relationship to our own memories, our own life situations that left a bad taste, that we're afraid to look at or feel. And feeling that somehow that mistake is like written in stone. There's no way to add anything to that. But there is a way to add something, because it's still alive in us anyway. We just have to realize it's still alive. Our burying something is the story we keep telling ourselves about that thing. It's not actually buried. That's just the next chapter, the most recent chapter. Then we just bring it up, and we decide what the next sentence is going to be. Or the next word. Wow. <laughs> I care about this pain. <laughs> you know, I care about how intractable this is. That's a nice way to begin the next sentence, you know, and it, it really opens the heart, mind, to maybe a different way of writing, a different way of relating. And then maybe the last point, you know, so we have uh, the point of blessing, the point of continuing, uh, rewriting, adding more to the difficult places in our life. And then the third is just, I mentioned at the very beginning, is to keep reinforcing in our mind how insane ill will is, how it doesn't actually work. It doesn't help anybody. It never makes sense. So we have to forgive ourselves. We don't want to bring ill will to ill will when it arises in our mind because it's insane. It doesn't work. It never helps. But just to keep that alive in the mind because the habit will be that it seems justifiable, it seems useful, it seems appropriate to have a will, to get angry, to be irritable, to be aversive. It just seems, you know, even to be bored, it just seems to make sense. When nothing's happening, I guess it's appropriate to be bored. You know, boredom is a kind of aversion, like a closing down because nothing's happening. So we don't have to kind of fall into that because of habit, thinking that somehow aversion 
ill will protects us or takes care of us. To always remember, I don't think this ever works. Or just, you know, explore the, is this actually insane? You know, in the sense, insane meaning the only reason the mind-heart acts in that way is because it's not really paying attention. And if it actually paid attention to what was going on, it wouldn't be relating in the way that it's relating. So I want to leave it here. I mean, one thing I can say with great confidence is that all of us have had a lot of experience with both ill will and goodwill in the heart and mind. And so it would be nice to hear from people questions, of course, about the talk. But uh, any experiences from your own life, we can learn from your mistakes, where your mind got caught up in ill will, and we can learn from when you've been able to transform ill will into goodwill, maybe in one of the three ways that I talked about tonight, or maybe in other ways. So what comes to mind? What would you like to share? Please say your name if you speak up. Yeah, Kevin. Just in case you had forgotten your name. actually a good question to ask you know we we you're probably that comes up because that we're capable of that of course and and actually our practice probably inevitably will get corrupted by just that where I mean this is the the tricky thing about right view the the movement toward right view has to arise out of right view it can't arise out of greed and aversion. So in the end, the practice, this whole path is always about our attitude. So when you notice there's a lot of sadness, like in your case, walking around the lake, and in that case, you're able to 
brings the question arose in your mind. It sounds like you know. Well, can I be happy with this? Can I just be here but be happy? And you realized, yeah, there was some happiness there. You said, and then you mentioned that. Well, I'm, I wonder sometimes whether you know I'm suppressing or I'm kind of making something happen, and. If in that moment around the lake, when you noticed there was sadness, maybe if if your mind got identified with the sadness, and you really felt, oh, I am sad, and were fearful of that sadness, like I don't want to be sad, I don't want to slide into depression, I don't want to, and then oh, okay, I'll I'll bring in happiness. Well, that's called either greed or aversion, you know, because then it's like. You're the you're asking the mind to transform itself, but the ground from which you're asking the mind to transform itself is greed and aversion, self-centered stuff. But self-centered stuff always leads to more self-centered stuff. And this is that great chicken and egg thing that's just inevitably part of spiritual practice. So. Um, this is why confidence or faith, you know, we don't talk about it a lot in Buddhist practice, but it's essential. But in Buddhist practice, confidence and faith is really pointing to aspects of our direct experience where we have seen that happiness actually is available. So if we can just remember that that's called confidence or faith. Like, there we are, there's sadness, but we remember the experience of happiness. That's different than just being sad. It's one thing to be sad, and it's another thing to be sad and remembering happiness is possible. It's like there's space in the mind. When there's just sadness, in a sense, the mind is uh, captured by that strong emotion, by that emotion, that negative emotion. That the mind can be mostly captured or entranced by that strong emotion, like, it seems so much about me, I'm going to really fixate on it. But there's like a small voice, you know, when our wisdom isn't strong, but there's some, it's like a small, quiet voice saying, maybe not so. Maybe there's happiness here too. Maybe happiness is available too. But it's quiet voice, you know. And what the practice is really about, what mindfulness is really about, you know, it's about being open and inclusive. So even though our more uh, established conditioning in the mind, the more negative conditioning in the mind, might be very loud and seductive, you know, I'm sad, I'm sad, I'm sad, and I've got all these reasons to be sad. And it's the mind is its habit is to sort of listen to that sort of neon light habit energy, right? But because we're practicing being mindful and receptive and open, we aren't pushing this away because that's more aversion. That's using wrong attitude to get rid of wrong attitude. It doesn't work. So we're allowing the neon lights of sadness to say sadness, sadness, sadness. But we're also, the mind is staying open. It's not losing itself in that experience, even though it's quite strong and seductive. And it's also aware of other possibilities that are present in the moment, like the quiet voice saying, happy, happy, you know, or patience, patience, or forgiving, forgiving. And then, because mindfulness creates that choice, 
And however much wisdom is the mind then, once mindfulness reveals all the possibilities, even the quiet voice of happiness, then wisdom can arise and go, it's really strong and seductive, but it's unskillful. It's really quiet and feeble, but it's skillful. That's unskillful. This is skillful, meaning absorbing into, getting identified with the neon lights of sadness causes contraction, suffering, doesn't lead to happiness. Paying attention, orienting around this quiet voice leads to release and happiness. So the, the, um, the discernment of what is skillful and unskillful requires that there's mindfulness, that there's a sense of open, clear awareness. And then wisdom just happens in that awareness, that discernment about what's skillful and unskillful. But that choice won't happen unless there's some awareness. So this is like breaking down what happened in your walk. And if all you saw was the sadness, there might be all kinds of forces in the mind about wanting to do something. But the trouble is they're being born out of a very constricted state of mind. So it's like all the mind can imagine is to relate to this with aversion. So it might actually discern this is unskillful, but it doesn't see any other possibility. It doesn't have that space that recognizes there are other possibilities. And that's what mindfulness does. It sort of opens it up. And we see, you know, the sort of dark tunnels of our negative conditioning, but we see other possibilities as well. Because mindfulness isn't getting attached to anything. It's just knowing, it's just seeing, but it isn't getting lost in what's it, what it's knowing and seeing. And that's the difference between mindfulness and our ordinary ways of paying attention. We tend to absorb into whatever's strongest. And we become that then because we've absorbed. We lose every other possibility. So we're always grounding, absorbing into whatever's the strongest strand of conditioning that's been activated. And we become that person, literally, become that person. Everything disappears. That's why we feel. That's why the sense of self is such a strongly conditioned reality for us, because we're we're always different people in our life, you know, in different moments. But in any moment, we're always somebody, because we've the mind has absorbed into that particular emotion or that particular strand of conditioning. So we always feel quite grounded in a particular reality as Mark. You know, I'm the nice Mark now. And then we have this blindness where we don't realize how inconsistent Mark is. You know, if we really saw how inconsistent who we are is, it wouldn't make sense to have such a strong sense of self. But somehow we're blinded. We just don't get how inconsistent. Because the feeling of being a self is so convincing because of this habit of absorbing in. So it's really hard to break that habit of absorbing into whatever particular conditioning has been triggered. That's why mindfulness takes a lot of practice, like to be intimate, but not to be confused by what we're being intimate with. So that, like in your case, Kevin, walking around the lake and feeling some sadness, that's the fruit of your practice. Kevin went on a six-week retreat last fall, and he's been practicing pretty consistently for, you know, half dozen years or so. And one of the fruits of consistent practice is an emotion can arise and we don't get completely lost in it. 
And it doesn't mean it isn't painful. We may be 95% lost in it, so to speak, you know, or lost, 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 not lost, you know, lost, 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 and then, you know, one moment out of 100 moments, not lost. But in that moment, we're not lost. There's a choice, you know, and because in that moment, the discernment can happen where we see that's skillful and this other possibility, that's not skillful and this other possibility is skillful. And the mind can then, the intention can arise to look here, to notice this, to absorb into this over here, like forgiveness or patience, or even grim endurance, like don't act this out. It isn't as real as it appears to be, you know? I mean, a lot of us have that wisdom arise when we get really angry, where we realize, I'm really angry, don't believe what the mind is telling you right now. You know, and we may vent in our minds, but, you know, some of the time at least we know enough not to act it out because there's some space in the mind, however limited it might be. Thanks for bringing that up, Kevin. What other thoughts people have? Yeah, Judy. I've been really thinking about um, during this talk about just a situation very different, different emotion, but kind of this very persistence in myself to have ill will toward um, my supervisor, who I feel has not given any recognition to some people who are retiring. So there's been this whole drama about, um, you know, kind of the injustice of that and a lot of anger. And I've been thinking as you've been talking about why is it, even though part of, part of me can see I could just, um, I could at least redirect the story and say, well, or to just what I can do and not worry about this so much. I mean, just redirecting my attention onto good wishes for the people who are retiring. Mm -hmm. um, that would be the first strategy. Like the practice blessing. Yeah, yeah, just the practice blessing. No, I just want to kind of put yeah. it in the context of what I said earlier. Yeah, yeah you were saying, yeah, what blessings are there? Yeah, mm -hmm. You know, that I, I do feel some good feelings or wishes for them. Mm -hmm. um, but I was just, just kind of replaying the day, just noticing oh, the, the strong addiction. I mean, it's just like, even though there's a little bit of mindfulness there, and even though I know this is, may not be skillful. He just, I, I've been trying to think about well, why is it so strong and how, why is it that I can't bolster my <laughs> bigger mindfulness a little bit. It has something to do with also not recognizing, not wanting to recognize the ill parts of the unpleasantness. You know, Kind of like not fully, fully appreciating the disastrousness of the real world. So that's the third instruction, right? To kind of, you're recognizing like, oh, it might be skillful for me to see the insanity of dwelling on these feelings about my supervisor. Like to really see that, you called it destructiveness. Is that what you said? Disastrousness or something? Yeah, just the uh, the downside. Yeah. Um, 
And that's really useful to see that. So what is the hook? What did you see? What's the hook? Maybe a little louder so they can hear you in the back. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. 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 And, and and also to appreciate that there is something juicy too, because one we want to recognize how how it is so harmful to be what you call on the dark side, you know, to be caught in aversion or judgment. But we also want to we have to acknowledge there's something juicy about being on the dark side, because it it does allow you know in a very fluid world it gives us a sense of purpose, a sense of ground when we're angry. And Buddha, in one of the ways that it's translated, this particular passage from one of his teachings, he called anger murderously sweet. That feeling, you know. There's a sweetness to the... Because it's like a wholesome samadhi is when the mind becomes unified without negative emotions. That's what concentration, wholesome concentration or samadhi is. The mind comes into the present moment, but not based on greed or aversion. It comes in by letting go, by relaxing and allowing things to be. Unwholesome concentration is that, where we concoct something that makes us really afraid or really angry or really needy, and we get really concentrated about what I need to be happy or what I, uh, my resentment for somebody. Both create a, a, a really uh, seductive feeling of unity. One is a unity that doesn't need defense, defending. You know, it has a stability. The other, you know, is really about splitting things apart. It's it's really about kind of closing down the anger and the greed kind of unity. You know, where the mind gets really absorbed in the sense of self using greed, using aversion. And uh, so we have to appreciate there is something sweet there. And we have to appreciate, like you said, Judy, that how destructive it is for the mind and heart to dwell there. It, you know, it isn't, it isn't good for us. And it isn't good for those around us either, of course. Yeah, thanks for sharing that part of your life. Time for maybe one more comment, if anybody else has a thought they'd like to share with the group. Insights from your life you'd like to share? Yeah, Anne. Um, I, I have something kind of similar with the world going on recently. And I've been thinking what you said the past few weeks as 
Sundays ago? Satikara, probably. Um, he said something uh, similar about loving kindness, just to remember that everybody is something like, you know, a little Buddha, or, you know, what I got out of it <coughs> as a practice, he actually offered it as a practice, and to walk around just remembering that every single person, like you often say, it just also wants to so I, I applied that to my neighbors so I've been struggling with. I'm the only one struggling. They're not struggling. <laughs> Do you wish they were struggling? <laughs> in my mind, I could catch that they are, but they're totally not. They're just smoking outside of my apartment. And, I, I, and it often happens when I'm meditating. Uh-huh. My windows are open and it's so beautiful and I'm using the listening and hearing sound maker. <laughs> and then they come out and they start chatting and smoking and, and it's incredible how angry I would get. And yeah. so I've started just noticing that more and and being with it more and all sorts of trying to apply a lot of the, the practice to it. And um, but when I really started really thinking of them as just beautiful souls and people like me, like, rushed us separate, I started feeling, you know, truly feeling loving kindness for them. And just yesterday, I was sitting at my table working, and I came out, and immediately I just, and I, I, in my head, I've had conversations with them like a million times, and started into big fights, and, <laughs> and, and this time I just naturally got up from my chair, and I was like, I'm just going to go ask them. That was super easy, and I, I knew that there was a possibility that I could let myself get enraged and go out there and be shaking and trembling. But I was like, it was it was gone. It was like unnecessary to do that. Yeah. And I I just really gently said, you know, I just asked them. It was like a request. And they were like, oh my God, we've so been wondering, like, this has been bothering you, and we just really don't want smoke going into your apartment, we'll totally go elsewhere. Like, they couldn't have been more loving. It couldn't have been more fast and easy <laughs> and resolved. And I really attribute it to, to me doing the work of loving kindness and, like, being with the shakiness and the anger on my own to, uh, as a practice before talking with them. Yeah. It transformed it. Thanks so much. What a nice way to end the evening. Thanks, Sam. We'll just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.